All right, well, thank you everyone for coming. Um, I'm going to introduce our speaker now, uh, Teresa Mannion. She's an attorney uh, with a passion for bioethical issues. She earned a bachelor's degree in biological research before receiving her JD from Case Western Reserve uh, University School of Law. Uh, Teresa has interned for the Bioethics Defense Fund, uh, largely created the curriculum and syllabus for a master's course entitled Law and Bioethics for the University of Mary, and completed the National Catholic Bioethics Center certification program. More importantly, she has a great love for her Catholic faith, enjoys um, following developments in law and science, and strongly believes that there are times that science goes too far and other times where science uncovers very helpful discoveries that may be uh, unnecessarily feared. So with that, uh, let's welcome our speaker. Thank you, everyone. So before we dive into this great topic of are we playing God, I'd like to first share with you a story from my time at Loris College. And while I was at Loris, I had the opportunity to teach what's called supplemental instruction for a second year uh, biology class. Actually, it's the first year biology class, but the second installment of the first year biology class. And one of the main topics in this course was evolution. So I was teaching my supplemental instruction class and going over several of the theories of evolution. Um, again, if you uh, aren't aware of that there were several theories of evolution, not important to the story, just take it at face value. You can ask me about it later. So anyways, I finished teaching the supplemental instruction course and I had one individual who knew I was involved in my Catholic faith uh, come up to me afterwards and ask me with total and complete sincerity, how can you be Catholic and believe in evolution? And my apologetic mind was so excited to answer this question. I'm pretty sure my thoughts were racing a mile a minute, and I was trying to formulate how can I best explain this to you so you can understand this and walk away learning something, but also not me overwhelming you with Catholicism or science or any combination of it. And if I had, um, I definitely remember that I referenced uh, John Paul II, Saint, Pope St. John Paul II's message to the Pontifical Academy of Science on Evolution that he gave on October 22, 1996. And no, I did not know the date or the name of that message. I just looked it up <laughs> for the purpose of the story and that if you wanted the opportunity, you could go and read it later because what he says on that in that speech is really, really excellent to this point. And in that speech, St. John Paul II said that there's no conflict between evolution and the doctrine of faith that truth cannot contradict truth. So we're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about evolution, but just so I don't throw this at you and then walk away and leave, leave you to it, um, I'll, I'll kind of explain what that means. If a Catholic and an atheist scientist are both looking at the theory of evolution, they can both look at the biological theory of evolution. Biology has seen and has best determined that this is one possible way that life could have come to exist in the world based on our bio knowledge of biology and our knowledge of science and understanding of the world. But as a Catholic, we then say, if this is how the world came to be, then God was with it and shaped life at every moment and point in time throughout this course of evolution. That there was a creator who had a purpose and the purpose was to create us in our full dignity and, and beauty. And this, this conversation that I had with a student was one of several things that semester that when I was teaching supplemental instruction that really um, 
caused me to shift my career. Because when I started at Loris College, I was bound and determined that I was going to go somewhere sunny and warm and beautiful and by an ocean, and I was going to study marine biology and spend my life by an ocean in a lab researching. And this conversation, as well as several others, really shown me that there's so much truth in, in the biological sciences, there's so much truth in Catholicism, that what Catholicism teaches about who we are as people, and a lot of people, for no fault of their own, don't see the mesh or the understanding or the communion of that. Um, that career shift somehow ended, it ended up taking me to law school. Um, that's a story for another day. It involves a couple, the vice of uh, two priests that I trust a lot, um, and has somehow led me to here today. So, uh, what are we talking about today when we're playing God? It's asking this question of, are we in biological science playing God? And when we get to that point, I'm going to talk about four, four different, um, we'll call them medical procedures, for want of a better term, and a way to normalize all of them. Um, there's in vitro fertilization, three-parent embryos, cloning, and gene therapy. And right now, these probably seem, some of them probably sound familiar, some of them might seem a little bit abstract. But regardless, uh, before we dive into that, I want to make sure everyone's on the same page on our ethics and theology and science so that I don't go into this large diatribe about here's exactly how three-parent embryos work and you're not understanding the significance of why this is a crazy thing to begin with. So to anyone who has advanced degrees in theology, ethics, or biology, I apologize if any of this seems very simplistic. Uh, it's meant to just be an introduction. Uh, go along with it. Instruct your people on your table. Um, but if there are questions. If I don't explain the biology the way that, and you still have questions, if you want to poke about the ethics, if you have questions about the theology, I will let you know before I shift to each one. So feel free at that time to raise your hand. Um, we'll address those questions in the beginning before I get into the, here's the reason why I'm telling you all about this in the first place. So that being said, let's start about with ethics. So what is ethics? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines ethics as a set of moral principles, a theory or system of moral values, and a discipline dealing with good and bad and moral duties and obligations. There are many such theories that you can use to determine if something is morally good or bad. You might have heard of several of them. There's utilitarianism, Kantism, there's Arist Aristotelian virtue ethics. Um, we're not gonna go into those. Uh, if you're interested, Look it up later. Um, we're going to focus on natural law. And the reason why we're going to focus on the, the ethical theory of natural law is because the church uses this theory 90% of the time. I don't know the exact percentage, but the vast majority of the time in writing all of its church teachings on biological issues. Um, the USCCB, or the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops, also uses this when they're looking at most of their moral issues when it comes to bioethics. So what is this theory of, this idea of natural law? The sum of what natural law is, is that there are basic principles of morals. The basic principles of morals are objective, that they're accessible by human reason, and that these principles are based on human nature. So that's kind of a lot, so I'm going to repeat it. Natural law states that there are basic principles of morals that excuse me, the basic principles of morals are objective, that they're accessible by human reason, and that they're based on human nature. 
And because we're Catholic and we like things in threes, I'll just say it one more time. Uh, the basic principles of morals are objective. They're accessible by human nature, and they're based, they're accessible by human reason, and they're based on human nature. And this theory, this concept, it wasn't created by the church. It dates back to the famous Greek and Roman philosophers and legal scholars who saw that man could know that certain things were wrong. One of the greatest examples of this is murder. We can almost all universally say that if you go up to someone and stab them or shoot them without any reason or provocation, that that is wrong. That's generally held true throughout all of the world. Obviously, there's a whole just war theory other times. We're not going to get into that. We're just going to go with the murder, the intentional, there's no reason. Good. OK. Um, this theory of natural law also appears in the Bible. If you look in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, St. Paul writes, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. This understanding that the Gentiles knew the law that Paul was teaching the Christians by virtue of their nature as human beings. This idea of, of natural law, though, needs to be tied to who we truly are as persons. And the church, in all of its goodness, uh, I just think really defines this well in the encyclical entitled Veritatis Splendor where they state that the true meaning of natural law is that it refers to man's proper and primordial nature, the nature of the human person, which is the person himself in the unity of soul and body, in the unity of his spiritual and biological inclinations, and of all of the other specific characteristics necessary for the pursuit of his end. In some of that great quote, what, it, what, they're, really, what they're really trying to dive into there is that Natural law is truly natural in, in the ca most Catholic sense. When you look at the human person as this unity of body and soul, we're not just bodies, we're not just souls. We have to look at them together. And when you look at this in this morally objective, founded on reality and based on human nature view, you can kind of start to understand why the church teaches some of the things it does, um, especially about the dignity of life. So think about the fact that the church teaches that from the moment of conception to the time of death, that every human being has natural dignity. This ties back to the idea that we are a unity of body and soul from that whole time, and that in that unity of body and soul, we have dignity. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to use every extra procedure you can think of. You don't have to die for every experimental procedure to keep someone alive, but it does mean that there is dignity that every person has in having a natural death, as well as in being alive to begin with. Another great example of the church using this is Humani Vitae. And as some of you may know, Humani Vitae just celebrated its 50th anniversary last week. Um, so it was a good time to tie this in um, to this talk. And in Humani Vitae, Pope Paul VI really dives into this, this idea of contraception and states, with the full authority and weight of the church, as him sitting in the seat of St. Peter, states that contraception is immoral. And this, this view of contraception, well, we'll get to the, the theology behind that as well, um, is immoral. Um, he also looks at why it's ethically immoral, if you look at it from the perspective of the natural law. And Pope Paul VI breaks down the fact that when it, contraception is used, when that block is there in between a man and woman, a uh, husband and wife, in their act of marital love, that that's not doing the full dignity 
of the human person, that you're not taking this full idea of the natural law, of the purpose of humanity, it's getting divorced from the marital act. Um, and with that, we can start talking about the theology, unless if anyone has questions. No? Great. Everyone still with me? Okay. So to move into the theology, we're going to continue talking about humani vitae. As most of those, um, those questions about are we playing God, most of the vast majority of them have to do with looking at zygotes and embryos. So in order to do that, we kind of have to look about what the church says theologically about zygotes and embryos. We also have to look at the biology of that. But we're in the theology section now. Let's focus on that. So in Humanae Vitae, uh, Pope Paul VI talks about how there's, there's the two main purposes of the marital act, which are the unitive and the procreative, and that those two cannot be divided. Why this is so important theo theo in, terms of, in a theological sense is that we're looking at relationships between man and woman. And this is the same way that we have relationship with God, and God has relationship with himself. Because God is a relational being. We have the Trinity, the three persons that make up the one God. He himself is a relational being. And this relational union shows up and is best reflected in the act of marital love, where um, children can come forth from that reality. And all of those people who are created through the marital act, through, regardless, you're created with dignity as a person. That dignity is not based on anything you've done in your life. It's not based on who you are, where you've been born. It's not even based on any good thing you may do in your life, because God knows all that already. But he creates all of us with dignity, and he calls all of us to respect each other with dignity. For he says in, in, in Genesis, in the very beginning, that we are his very good creation. We're not just his creation, we are not just good, we are very good. We are the epitome of God's createdness. And this um, is really tied in in the first, um, in catechism, if you look in paragraphs 1700 and 1701, I will not quote them for you, um, but in case you want to reference them back later, I will just pull snippets from them. And in that section of the catechism, the church is talking about dignity. It's talking about how the dignity of the human person is rooted in the creation that were made in the image and likeness of God. And that in Christ, the image of the invisible God that man created, in Christ, the image of the invisible God that man created is the image and likeness of the creator. So we have this idea that we are created in God's image and likeness. And from that creation, from that perspective, we have our dignity. And the church has stated over and over again in, in several places that this, this creation, this dignity, it starts from the very moment of our conception. And this was um, Pope Emeritus Benedict wrote this when he was the pontificate for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in Donum Vitae. And if I'm citing a lot of things that sound very big and very, very intense. Um, you'll have to excuse my legal degree. Um, I have to cite everything. Um, it's a habit. It's not a bad habit, but it leads for a lot of long sentences. Um, but in this, in this, uh, in this declaration, uh, 
Pope Emeritus Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote that from the very moment of existence, the respect is due to the embryo, as is given to every other person, even if the embryo is not viable, because they are, in fact, a person. Um, he goes on to say that medical research must refrain from experiment, experimenting on live embryos unless there's a moral certainty that it won't cause harm to either the embryo or the mother. Bringing it back closer to home a little bit, the United States uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops promulgates what's called the Ethical and Religious Directives. I'll uh, bring them out here so you can see what it looks like. It's this lovely little pamphlet that's also accessible online. Um, and what this pamphlet is, it's the bishop's way of, of unifying the church um, teachings on medical ethics in a way that anyone at a hospital, working at a Catholic hospital, could pick up this and kind of un and understand these are the procedures we can practice and these are the procedures we can't practice um, that's specialized for Catholics in the US. Um, it's a great resource if you're ever interested in doing anything with bioethics and Catholicism. This is like the, the handbook for it in the US. Um, but anyways, uh, in their section about uh, the beginning of life and respecting people at the beginning of life, the bishops talk about how um, technology that substitutes for the Marriage Act cannot be allowed unless if it's consistent, um, cannot be allowed because it's not consistent with human dignity. This idea that our dignity is so in, in, intertwined with um, how life is created itself um, is kind of unique. Um, and is, is one of the, the great treasures of our Catholic faith. Okay, everyone still with me? Yeah? Shake it off, get ready? Okay, I know there are some biology PhD majors here tonight, so to all of you, I apologize, as this is, might sound very simplistic, um, but I also don't know where any of you at, are at in your biology, understanding of biology. I understand some of you may have not studied it since high school. You may have hated it in high school, um, which I'm not going to take offense at. And the last time I taught biology was to um, biology majors. So they, at least hypothetically, at least liked the subject. Um, so we're going to start, and um, we're just going to throw out this word, and we're going to see how you guys do with this word. OK, so raise your hand if you know what a nucleus is. Awesome, okay, so now's the important question. You know what it is, do you know what it, you say you know what it is, what is it? It is a organelle, or an organelle, found in uh, the cell that contains all the genetic material. Correct, does everyone know what you mean when you say organelle? Probably not. Um, okay, so in a cell, it's like a little sack that has all the DNA in it. So it's the control center of your cell. So in each and every cell in your body, um, regardless of where it is, if it's in your brain, if it's your heart, if it's, your, if it's the skin cell that's getting brushed off as I do this and that's falling to the floor even though you can't see it, all of those cells have a nucleus. And that nucleus contains your unique DNA that is specified to you that no one else has in the entire world, um, which is kind of neat. OK, um, so we're going to what a nucleus is. And what it does, it from that place of control and having all of your DNA, it really regulates what happens in the cell. So it tells the cell how to live, what to do, what to become, how it should be living its life, all those, all those great things. I know that sounds very simplistic, but we're just gonna go with that. Okay, 
What about mitochondria? Raise your hand if you've heard the word mitochondria before. Okay, that one's not as many hands raised. Okay, let's have like a very quick 15 second discussion. What, is, what are mitochondria? Go. Yeah. It, like the nucleus, is another organelle inside eukaryotic cells mm -hmm. that exists as the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> it also has its own DNA. It serves as a health checkpoint for the entire mm -hmm. cell, as it is. And it makes a bunch of other metabolites on top of it. Excellent. Thank you for that very detailed answer. And for saying this important point, which I want you to remember, uh, that the mitochondria has its own DNA. Stick that in the back of your head. We're going to come back to it in a little bit, OK? Um, and with it having its own DNA, this is another fun fact of the mitochondria, your mitochondria is passed down directly from your mother. So you can go back all the way through. Um, a lot of the ancestry websites use mitochondria DNA to track back through your maternal line to where you came from. So a fun fact about mitochondria. Okay. So in this, in this nucleus, which we may all now know what it is, um, humans have 26 chromosomes, unless if you have some sort of chromosomal disease. It doesn't mean you're not a human. It just means you don't have the, the number that all most that the humans usually have. Um, and these chromosomes, you'll usually see them as those X shapes. They're made up of a lot of DNA. Each chromosome has its own specific function. We're not going to get too far into chromosomes. Just know that humans have 26. In most 46. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 26 pairs, 46 chromosomes. I appreciate the, the specification. Okay. So with those 46 paired chromosomes, 23. 23 pairs, 46 chromosomes. Great. We're all good. I'm refreshing myself too. Okay. Um, I wrote sloppily my number, so I apologize and thank you for the correction. Um, okay, so 46 chromosomes in the vast majority of your cells. So this means that your brain cells, your heart cell, your skin cell, all have 46. Except your germline cells, which only have 23. And that's because those are the sperm and the egg and they combine to form a zygote, which has its own unique 46 chromosomes. Good? We good? Okay. So uh, biology also teaches us, and we can know from biology, that from the moment that we're conceived, we're a human being with our own unique DNA sequence. That is not something we only know from theology. That is not something we only know from ethics. Scientists have been able to see that from the moment of conception, you have your own unique 46 chromosomes that are un unlike anyone else's. They're, they're like other people's, but they're, they're your own. They have their your own DNA sequence. So with those little nuggets in mind of our theology and our ethics and biology, granted it was very quick biology, again, just want to make sure we have basic understanding, we're going to dive into these questions of are we playing God? But before we get there, does anyone have questions, need clarification, or do you just want me to keep diving in? Okay, we're going to dive in then. Okay, so the first topic we're going to do is called in vitro fertilization. The acronym is IVF. It's generally used. It's very common. I'm going to call it IVF for the rest of the evening. Um, so just know that I mean in vitro fertilization. And before I really dive into this, I have um, a disclaimer, essentially, for 
talking about IVF. And that is, it's very possible that you know people in your life who have used IVF to conceive. It's possible that you know someone who has been conceived by IVF. What I'm about to say does not take away the dignity of anyone who has conceived, by, conceived and born from IVF. It does not mean I'm calling out your friends or family members who may have used IVF to conceive. I'm just explaining what the church teaches about IVF and why it teaches that. We cool? Everyone good? Great. Okay, so in IVF, what happens is you um, hyperstimulate the mother or the um, donor to produce a large amount of eggs. They collect all of those eggs. They collect sperm from the, the um, father, donor, regardless. They take the egg and the sperm in a petri dish, they mix them together, and they make an, a zygote that then forms into an embryo. They take the embryo or embryos and implant it back in either the mother who donated the egg or a surrogate if the mother can't carry, doesn't want to carry, whatever reason. Put it back in, in some human woman and let the pregnancy come to term. Okay, has everyone, have people heard about this procedure before? Does what I just seem sound really crazy? Yes, no, maybe, okay. So let's talk about the, what this looks like ethically. So in this theory of natural law, where we come to know what is right and wrong through, through our understanding of um, nature, does this seem very natural to anyone? No, probably not, right? We're taking something that occurs naturally um, between human beings and putting it in a lab. It kind of has that same, um, when, you, when you say um, science, there's this idea that you have observational biology and then lab biology. There's more technical terms than that. I'm not going to use them. Then this idea that in the, in nature, animals are gonna act a little bit differently, plants are gonna act a little bit differently than they ever would in the lab. And that's because you can never account for all of the other factors. Um, so that's our, our nature perspective. Theo theologically, how do, we, how, do we feel about, how do we feel about this procedure? Um, we'll just start out with the fact that the church teaches against the use of IVF. And the reason why it does this is that IVF divorces the, the unitive and the procreative portions of the marital act. It takes the procreative and places them in a lab dish. In fact, I think we go back a little bit, I talked about how any procedure that takes the place of the marital act is not condoned by the church. That's what Pope uh, Benedict XVI said when he was um, a cardinal. And the reason for that teaching, again, is the church teaches that the marital act is so beautiful and so wonderful and that it can't be separated. Those unitive and procreative portions must go together. And when you understand that, you understand most of what the church teaches about, um, about early life and the, the respect for early life. Okay, and then biologi biologically, what do we know about these embryos? We know that each and every one of these embryos that are created in IVF is in a unique person. It has its own DNA structure. If you want to look and call it an embryo, not, not give it its title of personhood, legally the embryos at this point do not have any personhood um, in the United States. They are, um, they are uh, unique though. Um, 
And what we've seen as a coming trend is that now we can know enough about the, the DNA of each embryo to say this embryo is a, is a female and this is a male. And we've seen people start to select what embryos to implant based on that. Or they'll screen the embryos and say, oh, do any of these embryos have chromosomal diseases? If they do, um, the parents might not choose to implant that embryo because they don't want to have to deal with the chromosomal disease that that child would bring if that embryo was allowed to, to be taken to term. And we'll, we'll see the selective implantation, which kind of borders on eugenics, uh, which is a little shaky ground. You don't want to be near eugenics. Um, in, in Indiana, um, just for, for some legal reference, I cannot, this is my other disclaimer of the evening, I cannot comment on the law in Indiana as a lawyer. I am not licensed to practice law in the state of Indiana, so I can only tell you, this is, I read the statute and this is what the statute said, or this is what the sum of the statute said, okay? Cool, we're good? Okay. Um, so um, just last July, uh, the state of Indiana passed group coverage for IVF, which means that if you're in a group uh, insurance plan that does not have a religious exemption, you might be paying for your coworkers to have IVF performed. Um, and you might also have coverage for IVF. Um, IVF clinics are usually less regulated than doctor's offices and hospitals. Uh, they usually fall under the, the legal restrictions of laboratories rather than um, other medical facilities. So that's another fun legal fact. And since I'm a lawyer and I'm going to bore you with other legal questions to ponder, um, there's this great theory of what happens to the embryos that don't get implanted? Who do those embryos belong to? Do they belong to the parents? Do they belong to the center? And there's been several divorce cases now where the, the couple has had um, embryos stored in facilities. And part of the, the settlement or the trial in the divorce is who has these embryos and can these embryos be implanted or do they have to be destroyed? Um, lots, of, lots of really uh, good questions there. And again, we come to this back to this fact that the embryo has dignity. It's a person. It's a human. Not legally, it's not a person in, this, in the United States. But it, um, based on our, Catholic, our Catholic belief, we know that it is a person. Uh, so then who they belong to. So with those great questions, we're going to transition to this, this kind of similar procedure to IVF. And this is why I started with IVF, because it builds on these, these next two. Um, it's this idea of three parent embryos. So let's explain the, the science of this a little bit before we talk about the ethics and the theology. Okay, so you do the same thing you would in IVF. You take an egg and a sperm, you make them into a zygote that then um, becomes an embryo. Actually, at this point, they really do it more, more in the zygotic stage. Um, and the difference with the three-parent embryo is that the mother will have some sort of mitochondrial disease. Now, mitochondrial diseases are fairly rare, but again, remember, the mitochondria have their own DNA. They're transmitted from your mother. So you could have a mother who has a mitochondrial disease and not want to pass that disease on to their child. Mitochondrial disease varies greatly um, in its expression. It can, be, um, it can attack different um, organs in your body. It can have different levels of severity. Um, essentially, what it does is your mitochondria don't produce enough energy. 
Um, and this can be very painful. Um, and think about it, your cell needs energy to live and to work and to do its job, so that becomes problematic. So in the case of three-parent embryos, you have a mother who has mitochondria who, are, who have some sort of disease that would be passed on the child. The parents don't want that. So after they have the egg and the sperm fertilized the same way they would be in IVF, they take a donor egg from a, a female who does not have a mitochondrial disease and do the same thing. Put that egg and the sperm together. And that's really, they do that so that they can then take the nucleus from that donor egg out. They say, again, this is problematic, because remember, from the moment of conception, you have a unique person. They take that nucleus out. They throw it away. They take the nucleus of the mother and the father, who the mother has the bad mitochondria, and they put that nucleus in the donor egg. And then you have a child born who has arguably three parents, the two with the who gave them the nuclear DNA and the other one who gave them the, mito the other mother who gave them the mitochondrial DNA. Okay, so that sounds pretty crazy, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe not, no? Okay, um, this is legal in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's performed there only when there are mitochondrial diseases. It is not legal in the United States. It's actually against the FDA. Uh, rules and regulations to perform this procedure. Um, but we can talk about, ethically, this like totally blows natural law's mind, right? There is like nothing you can tie into how in nature would we take that nucleus from one and put it in the nucleus of another. Totally blows natural law's mind. And theolog theologically, we, we run into several issues. It takes away the, the dignity of the marital act. Um, it also destroys a nucleus um, that's been fertilized that we know it has its own unique DNA and is, deserves its own dignity. Okay. Pretty crazy, right? Okay, so we'll go with um, probably something that you've heard. I, I feel like I grew up knowing what cloning was for a large part of, part of my life. Maybe that was because I liked biology and wanted to know more, but I feel like that's been a term that's been in our, our nature and our common understanding of the world for a long time. Uh, Star Wars, of course, has many clones who help take over, depending on the, who, who your perspective of, if the clones are good or not. We're not going to get into any Star Wars debate tonight. But this concept is so naturalized that we, we don't always start, stop to think about what's going on. So this is a really brief description of what's happening here. You have a donor egg, fertilize it so you can take the nucleus out easier, usually, not always. Um, you take the nucleus of a somatic cell. So again, that's one that already has all of its chromosomes, the full number of chromosomes. And you put that nucleus into the donor egg and then let that donor egg grow into an embryo and you implant it into either um, the mother or the surrogate and let that embryo grow into its full form. And then you have a clone. This is obviously, everyone's heard of Dolly the sheep, right? So Dolly is the, the epitome of this clone sheep, the epitome of this working. Um, but it raises this interesting question of, is, is the clone truly a person as we understand it? Um, obviously, it's its own separate object, but it has the same DNA 
as the, the donor from the somatic cell. So is it truly unique or not? Um, ethically, again, this totally, like, how, how do you have something that is the same thing? Um, that doesn't really make sense in this sense at all. And theolog theologically, um, it kind of contravenes human dignity, right? Do, is our dignity the same if we can be multiplied through millennia? We're made for this one specific time. So how does that work? Uh, this, this process is, is also banned in the US by federal law. So we won't be seeing it anytime soon uh, here. But that's not to say that scientists over the world um, aren't working on, working on reaching this goal. OK, so these last three, I've kind of resoundingly said no to, right? Yeah? Kind of said, yeah, this, this pushes the bubble too far. And Catholicism is going to say, yeah, we're not going to allow this. It, it goes too far. We're, we're, we're arguably playing God and doing all these three things, right? We're creating people in all sorts of weird ways. Um, well, not really weird. You're putting them in a Petri dish, and you're making people. Um, it's true. Um, we come to this next, this next topic of gene therapy. And I've seen this term used very loosely. So I've seen it, um, and I don't know if, if the um, biology students in the room have any light to sh shed on that. But I've seen it used um, by hospitals to explain you know, they have genetic techniques that can help specialize their medicine to, let's talk about CRISPR. And if you don't know what CRISPR is, that's OK. Um, you don't need to know what it is for the, the purpose of understanding this talk. Um, but this idea of gene therapy kind of touches on this, this broader um, focus and push in medicine that's called personalized medicine. So this idea that if you look at each individual, you know, we, we all know we have our own unique DNA, right? We've established that. Um, from there, you can say, OK, if you have your own unique DNA, that means I should be treating you differently than I treat someone else. I should be treating you based on the genetic structure in your body, because some things are going to respond better to that than others. So for example, this is used to treat certain types of cancers. It's used to treat certain types of heart disease, because scientists can take um, your DNA and know what part of the chromosome to look at and say, OK, this is how this gene is expressing. You have this gene. And based on that gene, that's going to make you more susceptible to this type of cancer, but it's going to make you less susceptible to this other thing, or this other gene will do that. Everyone's still good? You're still following along? Yeah, OK. And back to you. Great. Um, so um, how do we feel about that? We're looking at someone's unique DNA, the thing that makes them biolog biologically their own unique person. Um, and the church really says, you know, like, yeah, this, we're going we're gonna to go with this. Like, we're not, um, there's certainly questions about, you know, you need consent to take someone's DNA, and you need to make sure that um, in using personalized medicine, you're not benefiting the rich more than the poor, and you're not making it so unattainably, unattainable that only some people can benefit from this. There's those questions. But the underlying theory of the science behind it is, is arguably very positive. Um, you're looking at the natural, what is naturally occurring in your body, the genes that are expressing in your body, and saying, based on these genes, how do we, how do we treat you? 
How do we make you better? How do we prevent you from having all sorts of diseases in the future? Um, there's other forms of gene therapy, and the most common uh, technique is called CRISPR, um, where you take, um, trying to, essentially you introduce a bacteria with a virus in it and have it, no, let me, let me cut that out. I'm not going to explain the mechanism by which this happens because I'm not going to explain it very well enough. I didn't. Um, I'm just going to explain to you what gene therapy is, what one branch of gene therapy is trying to achieve. And that is essentially to say, we know this one gene is not good, so we're going to cut it out and not let it express. That can happen a couple different ways. And if I'm oversimplifying it, I know I'm majorly oversimplifying it. There's so many procedures that happen. I can see the people who I can have identified as the biology people nodding that I am oversimplifying it. Um, and that's done purposely because really the idea is you're changing the way the gene expresses itself. And this could be good. It could mean that um, you know, people don't get sick. It could prevent a lot of genetic diseases. But it does raise the question of, in changing your genetic, your genes and changing your expression, are you changing who you are? Are you changing who your dignity, what your dignity is? Um, and the interesting thing, too, is when you're changing the adult's expression of these genes, you're often not changing the genetic inheritance of these genes. So if you change it in the adult, if you're changing the somatic cells of the adult, that doesn't mean you're also changing the chromosomes that are then being transmitted to any, any children that adult might have. Also see this um, in occurring in embryos as well. Um, and that, that is um, very troubling, especially when you're, you're manipulating the embryo to make sure that I want you this way. I want my child to express these genes. And you can see it easily coming from, let's make sure that we're not having major diseases that are life-threatening to, I want my child to have blue eyes. Right? Yeah. And if you take it from, from there, that becomes, the, that becomes the more serious question of, at what point does this come into this idea of designer babies, where we're saying now, we, can, we have this technology, so let's use it at all times to, uh, to do whatever we want. I have not been able to find any definitive, um, I, I haven't seen anything definitive from the USCCB on CRISPR or on anything. I know that it would obviously be very cautioned that it could go to, to this degree of choosing, you know, let's, let's define how tall someone is or let's define this. Um, and so I'm going to let you guys talk about it at your tables and what you think about the ethics and the theology. Um, so as we come, as we come and we've pondered a little bit, hopefully, hopefully, this question of are we playing God, um, sometimes in biology we are, and sometimes we're not. And it's important to differentiate, and it's important to know that, and it's important to understand um, not only, not necessarily um, the intricacies of the science, although for those who study that, 
that is so important to, to know and to understand. Um, it's important to know why we as Catholics teach, why, why the Catholic Church teaches this. Um, because I'm sure you've, you've probably had a conversation with someone about IVF. Um, you may have had a conversation with someone about cloning. Um, and it's important to, to know and understand why, why those teachings are there. It's not meant in any way to impede the science. It's meant instead to guide the science to its fullest form and to its uh, best use to serve humanity well. Well, thank you, Teresa, for your talk. Um, this is a question about embryo adoption. I'm not sure if it made it onto that pamphlet. Um, so, so I'm curious what the, te the church teaches about embryo adoption. Um, I, I understand that, the, um, so the idea, just if people aren't familiar, that you would adopt one of those IVF embryos um, saving it potentially from a life of either liquid nitrogen or destruction. Um, so, so, so I'm curious about this because it's an interesting situation. The church teaches that IVF isn't okay, that these embryos didn't come about through like a morally legitimate way. But now that they're there, um, what do you do with them? And is it morally permissible to give them the chance um, to be fully developed? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, when we're... Um I don't know that the church has fully decided what, what it should teach about it either. Uh, the, the most recent things I've seen about it were um, writings from several um, bioethics uh, scholars, uh, but nothing distinct from the USCCB, and there's nothing in this about that specific issue. Um, and again, as you, you said so eloquently, um, you have these embryos that are people, so how do we do we let them live their lives? Do we let people adopt them and, and um, who may not otherwise be able to conceive or who just want to have another child or who want these embryos to, to grow? Um, I have heard from several of those ethicists that, that it kind of goes back to that idea of what, do we, what does the church teach about um, the marital act and what does it teach about procreation? And what it teaches about those, those two is that procreation should always be unitive with the spouse. Um, so this idea that, um, well, that does, does implanting someone else's embryo um, kind of violate the marital act, that the wife isn't carrying, you know, an embryo that was made through her and her husband, it was made through someone else. Um, so you have that, like, that theological question combined with the fact that obviously um, we know that embryos are people, and how do we let them be people um, and not just stay embryos? Um, I know that's not really an answer. Um, there isn't one definitive one, and um, I personally haven't been able to parse out a definitive answer either. Those are just some of the, the questions that are raised in, in answering that question is, does this violate the marital act? Um, obviously, adoption doesn't do that in the same way um, because you're adopting a child who's already been, been fully born and has um, may have just been born or maybe several years old. Um, but that question of um, does it violate the marital act and the unity and the sanctity of the marital act is the, is the main, I think, um, hold up that a lot of the church uh, ethicists have on, on allowing this procedure. Um, does that answer 
I know it doesn't provide you an answer specifically, but it hopefully, yeah, great. Other questions? So in 2008, the pontifical came out with a document called Dignitas Personae. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised because the language used in describing various sins that IVF or three-parent embryos, cloning, mm -hmm. and embryonic gene therapy, they actually ascribed the sin of abortion to all of those. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear that in your talk, and I'm wondering if the church, at least on the U.S. side, has backpedaled from that? That's a great question. Um, I haven't read that encyclical in a while, so I, I, I know that the language is, um, is there. I can't speak to, to it specifically. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know, yes. If I understood the question correctly, uh, if I understood the question correctly, isn't it, wouldn't abortion be inherent in the processes themselves because you, don't just Im you wouldn't just implant one embryo or create one embryo, but you would sort of play the odds game and you would implant multiple and see how many stick, which is why yeah. you have twins or triplets being born from IVF, but then also it's sort of inherent, not only are you separating the unitive and the procreative in the creation of mm -hmm. these embryos, but you're also creating these uh, large uh, banks and depositories of these human embryos, which uh, those lives will eventually be terminated by, by sheer number. Um, that probably touches on a lot of it. And I think, yes, the, the, the issue with IVF is you have all these additional embryos. Um, and a lot of times they're destroyed. Um, and that, that, is, that is a Abortion. It doesn't look the same way as other abortion procedures in the U.S., um, but you're you're aborting the life of the embryo. Um, if it's done by um, throwing them in the garbage, which sounds horrible, um, from the lab, or if it's um, through um, aborting a fetus or an embryo that's already implanted in the womb. Um, I hope that answers your question. I didn't speak about that specifically. Um, a lot of times when, when I give talks like this, I like to talk about the teaching um, generally and focus more on the, the, the reason for the teaching rather than the consequences of not complying with the teaching. Um, so, great question. So, yes, who else? You have one back here? We've talked mostly tonight well, exclusively, about the inherent human dignity of embryos and things like that. But our table was discussing maybe like with cloning animals because mm -hmm. they don't have that inherent human dignity. Does the church have a specific view of the genetic modification or cloning of animals? Um, obviously, we know that Humans are very good and animals are good. Um, so we'll start with that basic premise. <laughs> um, that being said, um, the church certainly uh, states that you know, in, all, in all scientific research, if it's cloning, if it's um, you know, a first or second phase of a trial, um, that it be done ethically, that you not you know, 
you don't sadistically hurt the mouse or the monkey or the rat or whatever animal you're testing, um, that you, you know, have a specific purpose for your testing, that you do your testing and that you do it well. Um, I don't know that that's like a specific church teach. I'm sure there's some specific church teaching about it. Um, I want to say that cloning animals, cloning humans is wrong. Any, any work cloning animals would only be to learn how to clone humans. Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, but that technology could be used for that. Um, I don't know a specific teaching against it. My, my inclination would be to say that it's not permissible. Um, I could see like cloning plants might be permissible in some circumstances um, if you're using them for some sort of medicinal purpose. I'm like really trying to think of how, how best to answer this. Um, I don't want to say yes or no because I, I don't know the answer. Um, some thoughts to think about in answering that question um, are um, why are you cloning animals? Um, are you cloning them to learn to clone humans? Are you cloning them for some other purpose? Um, and how is that, that research being conducted? Um, though my, my thought is no, I do not know the, the official church teaching on it and cannot speak to that. Yeah. Um, I had a question just about like emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. um, for anyone that's not aware, there's a lot of research going on with artificial wombs, mm -hmm. and they've successfully uh, grown lambs in an artificial womb. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see the church's teachings on things like artificial wombs, even like theoretically, yeah. um, if they could use just one embryo mm -hmm. um, and implant that in? a womb, which I don't think is how it would start, but yeah. eventually. Um, so I could see them being potentially permissible in certain circumstances. And the, the circumstances that I think it could be permissible would be um, when you have uh, children who are born very early, in like the 19th, 20th week, 23rd week, um, and need need more time to be in a womb to grow and to develop. I could see um, artificial wombs being developed and, and used permissibly in that circumstance to allow the, the uh, child to, to stay in that environment for longer, to develop longer. Um, I could definitely see that being a very supportive technology um, in that regard. Um, and arguably could solve this question that we had, this first question we have of what do we do with all these embryos? Um, how do they, do we let them, you know, die naturally? Do we let them grow and develop into human beings? Um, and I think there are a lot of questions that we could ask with, you know, could we put embryos in artificial wombs? Um, the main question to that then being, well, there's a lot of them, but the first one that pops up into my mind is, who is then responsible for these children? Um, do people, you know, adopt an embryo, put it in an artificial room, and then take it home um, as their child? You know, things like that. Um, so I could see, I could see a lot of benefits to it. Um, I think when you start with embryos, though, then you get into these 
these questions of, um, and again, um, what, with embryos too, if it's being used and it's being taken out of the natural, if, if you're doing IVF and then putting the embryo in a natural, or in an artificial womb, then it, again, you know, just, um, distorts that marital unity and is, is a reproductive technology that's, that would not be permissible. So definitely some benefits that could be very helpful um, and certainly some pitfalls as well. Yes, any other questions? Uh, in terms of uh, three-parent embryos, this isn't so much about um, ethics of it, yeah. but just biologically, how does a human grow healthily with two different sets of DNA, essentially? Um, it's a good question. They had that same question when IVF first started. Um, arguably, you have better mitochondrial DNA, so you would develop the same way you know, um, any IVF child would. Um, there's certainly the question of, is, is taking the nucleus out at the very beginning of your life, um, what, what impact does that have on, on growing up? And I don't know that anyone has the answer to that question. Um, the UK just came out with this in the last um, five to 10 years. Um, and I'm not sure, the, so the first child would be, would be less than 10 years old today, probably less than five. Um, and there haven't been, it hasn't been performed enough to know definitively this is a change. Um, it certainly changes how we track ancestry. Um, if this becomes prominent, there's really no way to, to track your maternal line the same way as, as it was before. Um, Um, about gene editing, so um, our discussion here was like where we should draw the line. So if gene editing is being used for, I don't know, cure uh, someone from like a potential cancer or uh, curing an embryo, you know, like trying to prevent that cancer to be developed in, the, in its late stages of life, um, should a draw, should a line be drawn there, you know, like in curing diseases, uh, and whenever someone thinks about like vanity, like, oh yeah, I want my kid to have like blue eyes or mm -hmm. have the athletic ability of LeBron James, um, you know, like vanity in itself is a sin. So is there, is there a problem with, because so far the church hasn't really, you know, made a an ultimatum, ultimatum mm -hmm. about this, so there's certainly something wrong about it. I just don't, can not think about. Yeah, and I think I think the the um, the potential for it to be used for for vanity or for um, physical characteristics rather than medical characteristics is certainly an issue, um, as well as um, I mean. It sounds really cool to say that we can do this. It's, it's still in a very experimental phase. Um, it's been successful, I believe, in some mice and rodent trials. I haven't, uh, some other people might be able to comment more if it's been successful in other trials as well. Um, so this idea of we're not entirely sure how, how, this, how this would work in humans, what the long-term effect would it, would it would have in working in humans if you do this. Um, is it permanent? Um, is there some, 
are the genes attached properly when they, they reattach it or do they edit it? Um, those are all questions that, that still need to be answered by biologists um, before we even begin looking at the ethics or the, the theology about doing this. I think uh, a lot of the problem, though, does it um, arise where, you know, where is the cutoff point? Um, and also, as well, um, the church teaching about suffering. You know, we don't, we don't say that we, we don't will suffering on anyone, but there is a lot of dignity in suffering, in, in having a disease and, and in um, living with the disease. Um, it's certainly not easy uh, for anyone to do, and there's a lot of, but there's a lot of compassion, um, as well as um, just a lot of faith and in unity in Christ and his suffering um, with diseases. And I don't, I don't, obviously God and the church doesn't want, don't want people to suffer, um, but they see uh, the dignity and the purpose that that, that can have as well um, in our society. Um, so how do, how do you mitigate that as well? Um, I don't know that I've really like formed my thought completely around this question, but I want to entertain the scenario of um, adoption of stem cells a little further. Okay. So what if we were um, put in a situation where we had to choose like a solution? Do you think the church would ever come up with a solution of like what is morally permissible? Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, doesn't like the action the intention and the circumstance all have to be good in order for anything to be morally permissible. Correct. Um, so do you think there would ever be a situation where the adoption of embryos <laughs> would be considered moral yeah. in the church? Because I don't know if we could, I can't think of a solution, not that I would expect myself to or any yeah. of us to. But. And I don't know if the solution is let's make an artificial womb and then, um, though again, you, you know, you adopt the embryo and it has that. Um, obviously the intention is good. Um, the action of adoption itself is good. Um, the action of implanting, but, and then you, you got into this whole debate of what action are you taking when you implant an embryo? Are you adopting the embryo? Are you implanting the embryo? Because implanting the embryo is not um, morally permissible by the church's standards um, because it, again, severs that unitive and procreative act. Um, but the action of adoption is good. So how do you, how do you what action are you taking? Um, I think you're taking both of them simultaneously. So you have one good action and one bad action. Um, the circumstances surrounding it could be could be good. You're you're trying to provide a life for an embryo that would otherwise either live in a refrigerator for the rest of its life, or would be have research performed on it. Um, yeah, I really I really think that the reconciliation needs to be made with if we if we say that if the church teaches that as it does that IVF is immoral because it severs this. Um, this relationship um, between a husband and wife, then how can any any implantation action be morally permissible? Um, 
Great question. I wish there was an answer. Um, because there are a lot of people with good intentions who would happily adopt an embryo. Um, but there's really, um, at this point in time, um, there's really no clarity on that or clarity on what do we do with these hundreds of thousands of embryos we have in, in labs across the world um, who, who have dignity. 